0: Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have been doing well since I was on the air last. And nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air with you guys as we have um, a lot of uh, information to uh, cover in this um, segment. Uh, But then again, I think it would be fair to say that we've had lots of information to cover per each uh, segment that has been uh, discussed in uh, the Whiskey Rebellion George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels who challenged America's newfound sovereignty by uh, William Hoagland. Now, in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn a little bit more about um, Herman Husband. We're also going to learn about uh, something that was called the uh, Neville Connection. Of course, when I uh, learned about the Neville Connection, uh, it had to do um, with the family. Perhaps it's fair to say that that family's uh, last name was Neville. But I know that uh, from a previous podcast, we learned a little bit of information about Herman Husband, but I also felt it was necessary that we uh, talk a little bit more about him and why his presence in uh, western Pennsylvania, uh, most notably the western Pennsylvania frontier, is of significant importance. We will also learn a little bit more about um, Alexander Hamilton's what do you call it, grand scheme behind um, behind um, the whiskey tax. Of course, I know scheme, to me, would sound like something that's suspicious or fishy. But um, but as we all know, that um, that it was um, a legit plan. It wasn't anything uh, sketchy. Of course, yes, there are those whom opposed it. But I think it's fair to say that there have always been skeptics and opponents who have opposed it. Um, legislation uh, or you know laws since the beginning of time but uh we will also learn in this uh podcast segment a little bit more about uh Hugh Henry Brackenridge because I if I'm not mistaken I do recall uh discussing with you all in a previous podcast that he had uh, written a petition or had uh he had uh, taken up the petition based upon uh, everyone whom had signed it at that uh Green Tree convention in um western Pennsylvania, those whom obviously were against the uh whis- federal whiskey tax. So we have a lot of ground to uh cover, but uh, I look forward to um sharing with you all what is uh relevant and uh necessary as we continue to progress and learning everything there is possible uh that uh played out in this uh, infamous uh whiskey rebellion along uh western Pennsylvania's uh frontier lands. So, our uh, first lead-off question is the following, that pertains to uh, Herman Husband. Was Herman Husband born prior to America's Great Awakening Movement, which began um, around the late 1730s and into the start of the 1740s? Uh, the answer is yes. Herman Husband uh, was born, folks, in the year 1724. That means he would have been 8 years older than George Washington, uh, 13 years older than, say, John Hancock, uh, at least 11 years older than Paul Revere, John Adams, um, 2 years younger than uh, Samuel Adams, uh, John Adams' cousin, uh, just to name a few of the uh, many prominent uh, forefathers whom were born um, either after um, Herman Husband uh, was born or just before. So, yes, he was born in 1724. Uh, Herman Husband came from a well-to-do family whom owned uh, tobacco fields along the Chesapeake Bay. Now, I know some of you probably find that hard to believe that there are uh, tobacco fields, um, that there were tobacco fields um, that were uh, very prominent in size along the Chesapeake Bay. I do know that um, the rolling hills of uh, Southern Maryland, in terms of uh, the Piedmont of Southern Maryland, uh, tobacco uh, was a very uh, lucrative uh, cash crop. So, it could be fair to say that that Herman Husband's family probably lived along uh, Maryland's rolling hills, not too terribly far from uh, the Chesapeake Bay. You know, it's interesting to note that um, Herman Husband, he wasn't a a Baptist by birth. He wasn't a Methodist. Um, He wasn't Presbyterian. He grew up in the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England. And, of course, the Church of England, you know, that's a very uh, powerful institution. You know, when I think of the Church of England, I think of uh, Virginia. I think of... uh, You know, the Church of England's influence, especially when Jamestown, not long after Jamestown was established, and uh, when uh, the capital also relocated from Jamestown to Williamsburg, and how um, influential the Church of England um, was in terms of its own uh, separate entity. I mean, you might as well have had um, a fourth institute of government in Virginia, and that being the Church of England. But it could be fair to say that uh, maybe in Maryland there was a fourth institute, and that being the Church of England. You know, uh, for those of you who were with me when we discussed uh, Bacon's uh, Rebellion, and we did uh, discover, or rather we uh, learned a great deal about Maryland in that uh, conflict, you know, Maryland was founded by uh, Catholic, um, most notably by the Calverts, uh, being uh, Catholic uh, refugees, However, the Calverts, you know, had to compromise. Uh, there were many in Maryland whom feared that if the Catholics controlled everything politically, that it would be um, a hybrid of the Catholic Church uh, from overseas. So the Calverts compromised where, yes, their influential power still remained um, noticeable, but yet uh, the governors were of uh, Protestant um of a Protestant sect and more than likely, uh, being that of Anglican. So it nonetheless saw uh, Herman husband did grow up in the Anglican church or church of England. But at the age of 15, young Herman saw a fellow by the name of George Whitefield or Whitfield, whom was a great awakening preacher preach in the village of Northeast, which is where, um, Herman Husband would have uh, hailed from in Maryland. Now, this uh, Great Awakening movement um, was one where um, multiple people per various denominations and regions went about challenging the practice, or the practices, I should say, of established churches. Now, when I think of uh, established churches, there probably ought to be two that should come to our mind. Anglican, or what we think of as in today's time as the modern-day Episcopal Church, and the Catholic Church. So, think about it. uh, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Quakers, Mennonite, uh, Brethren. um, Just to name a few uh, denominations that are uh, going about challenging uh, the practices of established uh, churches, You know, the Great Awakening, um, you know, the Protestant Reformation began first, and then the Great Awakening comes well after. But we could say that even the Great Awakening movement alone is, um, it it really is one that um, allows those whom have been perhaps disenfranchised to have a better voice, um, maybe not so much in their government, but have a better voice and um, knowing what is best for them. And while, yes, uh, attending church is important, but realizing that uh, established uh, practices are not the way to necessarily go all the time. In other words, yes, you can, you know, read Scripture. I mean, I'm sounding like I'm a theologian. I'm not a theologian, folks, but I'm trying to give you the best uh, scenario here of what this movement was like in terms of 101... um, description, and that, you know, here people are now being able to better freely express themselves by means of uh, questioning um, doctrines that had been um, established for some time that basically said, this is what you are allowed to do, but this is what you really aren't allowed to do. So basically, it's a it's a revival movement. It's um, a movement that is, that is Perhaps paving the way for what Thomas Jefferson had fought so vigorously for, and that was freedom of religion. In other words, Thomas Jefferson, for example, grew up in the Anglican Church as a child, and um, by the time he uh, went off to William and Mary, but it's after, after the time, after the starting point. Of his time at William and Mary, that's when his uh, views on religion gradually begin to change. In other words, he feels that while, yes, there is importance with church and state, church and state probably should not be uh, totally uh, intertwined or connected 100%. So it could be fair to say that those whom are um, challenging um, the practices of established churches, most notably Anglican and Catholic, are really in a sense challenging the practices of church and state. In other words, is it proper for is it appropriate for the church to tell the state how to govern its people? And is it appropriate for the state, being the government, to tell the church how to go about preaching its sermons to the congregations? So there you have it. You know, um, it's a double-edged sword. As for a uh, young Herman husband, he was so moved by the Great Awakening sermons that he broke off from his family's Anglican roots. Oh boy, I can only imagine what that must have been like um, at that time. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have a disagreement, but it's another to be disowned by your family all in all in the name of religion. Um, it, it happened, and we're not just talking about in colonial days, It still can happen even in uh, present-day time. It doesn't make it right, but I can only imagine for Herman husband how that must have uh, impacted his family. So, yes, he was very moved by the Great Awakening sermons that, yes, he pretty much breaks off from his family's Anglican roots, only to join Presbyterians and then Quakers. The Quakers... um, you know they're very interesting in that they exemplify their their motto is exemplifying true brotherhood, and by by exemplifying true brotherhood that means unity. That can be unity on on a whole host of things, but one thing that Quakers were fervent about was they preferred alternative measures like peace and neutrality. All. Over all things that could lead up to a greater conflict, being war. I could give you a good example. I had read in a, in a book uh, about a year ago. It was it actually had to do with uh, the battle at Germantown outside of Philadelphia. But prior to this battle at Germantown, not only was it in that book, but in a book on uh, uh, about the um, about Valley Forge and the. Uh, winter encampment crisis at Valley Forge, but long story short, uh, Quakers prided themselves on um, on this uh, brotherhood that, uh, for example, in times of war, not to be involved. They want neutrality, but at the same time, it is hard to imagine being neutral in a time of war what historians now know is that many quakers did side with the british during the war most notably in pennsylvania given that uh, philadelphia not only had a, a large uh, population but a good chunk of its population was loyalist uh, being loyal to the crown and that uh, basically for the quaker population they were they were acting as if it was a double edged sword they proclaimed their neutrality in public but yet, in private, they supported—they uh, supported British um, uh, military practices of uh, inhumane uh, prison conditions, prisoner conditions that pertain to American uh, troops. In other words, if there was a jail cell that w- that could hold maybe fifty to a hundred uh, prisoners at most, the cell, the jail cells exceeded that number and got to as much as between two hundred and fifty and almost close to 500 prisoners were living in filthy conditions Uh, it was bad enough in one instance where um where uh, jail uh, where jail guards would deliberately drop food on the floor only to make the prisoners eat it i'm not trying to gross you guys out but what i'm trying to uh, tell you all here is that you know it's one thing for someone to say that oh i'm a quaker but are they really? Are they truly uh, exemplifying um, their faith? In other words, it's one thing to say, "Oh, I'm a Quaker, and that I exemplify the true brotherhood, preferring alternative measures like peace and neutrality over all things that could lead up to war." But at the same time, I can go behind closed doors and do things that are uh, very unbecoming—that is, supporting um, inhumane practices. Involving prisoners, so you know, uh, for Herman Husband, you know, it's one thing, yes, that he um, joined uh, the Quaker sect, but one has to hope that Herman Husband would not have um, affiliated himself with those whom uh, would have uh, engaged in uh, barbaric acts. But for all we know, he could have affiliate. He could have. Been affiliated with people whom he thought were his friends as Quakers, but yet they could have been uh, partaking in activities behind closed doors that young Herman Husband himself would never have known about. So it's like that old saying, so close but yet so far away. Now, uh, was Herman Husband uh, well off? Uh, In other words, you know, it, it doesn't sound like to me that he's poor, And it doesn't sound like to me that he is part of the lower working class of society. But it turns out that Herman husband was, in fact, well-off. For one, he was married with children. Secondly, he purchased his own plantation in Maryland. But listen carefully, folks. He owned no slaves. He was also a land speculator including part owner of two copper mines. Remember, folks, the land speculators? They're the ones who um, invest heavily in... um, Well, I mean, they invest money, but they also do a lot of heavy investing into um, land along the western frontier that they um, claim to have squatters' rights on, and in some instances they do, but in other instances it turns out that that they didn't get the first uh squatter rights like they thought they had only to um, lose the money that they had uh, invested in so land speculation is a um it's a risky um it's a risky line of work to be in because you're not guaranteed um one hundred percent success all the time now during his forties herman husband um He went from, I don't know if I'd say stardom is the right word, but he went from being um, successful. That is, you know, he was a successful businessman. All of a sudden, he becomes a fugitive. How do you go from being a successful businessman now to being a fugitive? Well, Herman Husband, um, during the uh, 1760s, which would have been the time that he was in the 40s, During this uh, decade, he began to see himself as one who became uh, an ardent leader in the people's movement. The change began with a move to the North Carolina backcountry, where he went about acquiring land through uh, land speculation purchases. In 1762, his wife died, and he and his children uh, moved further west into North Carolina. Now, during the late 1760s, he got elected by neighbors to the North Carolina Provincial Assembly. In terms of being radical, he uh, went about leading uh, protests, to writing petitions, to being jailed multiple times. Why was he doing all this? I mean, you would think, okay, if you're a successful businessman, that you would have some boundaries on... um, If you had been a successful businessman before, you'd think you'd have some boundaries on knowing how to go about properly conducting yourself uh, in public so that you don't um, become too big of a hothead to where you will be on a a particular state's uh, most wanted list. In other words, to me, the way Herman Husband's acting here, he might as well be the equivalent to a suspect that's uh, featured, say, on America's Most Wanted. Well, the reason why Herman Husband has become um, now somewhat of a fanatic is because he views um, those in the high-ranking status of society, being the gentry, he views the the local gentrymen in the North Carolina backcountry um, as people who um, are really uh, self-centered. He he views these people as individuals whom are only looking after their own interests. Well, I mean, yes, the gentry are in their own category. Yes, you could say the gentry are in their own world. They only make up 1% to 2% of the greater society. But in this case, Herman Husband, um, the reason for why he went after the local gentrymen was because, for one, they served as government officials, Okay, if the gentry are serving as government officials, this means that the backcountry people are bearing the heavy brunt on uh, taxes. Meaning that for the backcountry people, they are putting in far more greater uh, labor um, skills, practices, to where um, these uh, skills and practices involve the masses, ordinary people. Ordinary people performing the work at the expense of a few, being the rich, or what we would think of as the gentry, whom, in Herman Husband's eyes, got exempt from paying taxes. For Herman Husband here, this is unequal wealth, unequal wealth distribution. So, for Herman Husband, why is it that the masses, ordinary people, should be working um, left and right, say, more than eight hours a day, m- not just Monday through Friday. It could be, in some instances, even Saturday, engaging in, um, re- engaging in what we would think of perhaps in today's times as, um, or in the time of the Great Depression, uh, works progress administration projects. But in the eyes of uh, Herman Husband, why is it that all these uh, backcountry people Why should they have to go to great lengths to um, perform immense uh, labor practices, such as road building, where the people whom are going to benefit the most from it are the select few, though, being the gentry? Because they have probably more means to uh, get to places from point A to point B, and so it might be fair to say that the uh, gentry would have greater means of traveling from point A to point B, whereas the average uh, backcountry person will be lucky if he or she travels from point A to point B or just uh, to somewhere else outside of their home 30 miles at most in their lifetime. Most people who are in the gentry can could travel well over 30 miles to destination spots in their lifetime, but you have to remember too, the gentry also have more means uh, for accessing horses. They also have the means for fancy carriages where you know, a team of horses could be um, transporting uh, gentry men or gentry families from uh, point A to point B. So for Herman husband, this, he just doesn't like the fact that the rich are benefiting at the exempt of the masses. And this is, in his his eyes, where unequal wealth and distribution come hand in hand. So Herman Husband decides to, um, as we know, he is um, in the North Carolina Provincial Assembly. It is fair to say that uh, he was a, um, a legislator, or rather a delegate, whom at times could be very unpredictable. So at times he did go about supporting uprisings protests via means of violence at the same time though he could do an instant flip he could urge actions promoting nonviolent measures including making deals hence compromises with the government where it ultimately meant where it ultimately meant avoiding what folks how about jail time Wow, I tell you, you know, Herman husband, it might be fair to say that he could be one of those individuals where it's a love-hate relationship, depending on the side that you're on. You may love him if he uh does support uh people's protesting, uh potential uprisings, but you may hate him at the same time if he turns if he uh turn goes behind your back and makes a deal with those who are not for violence and if it means making a compromise to avoid jail time. To me, that's a double-edged sword, but isn't it fair to say that politicians have been doing these kinds of practices since the beginning of time? Uh, perhaps so. It may not be the most pleasant thing to do, but sometimes sometimes that's how um, legislation gets done. It may not be the prettiest way to get it done, but sometimes... Um, Compromises have to be made um, under the most unpleasant of circumstances. Hang tight here for just a moment, folks. I will be right back. I'm back. Now, in March of 1771, Lord Tryon of North Carolina, he was the North Carolina royal governor, he called out the militia to have them go westward. Into uh, Western North Carolina to put down uprising, or to put down an uprising. Herman Husband uh, was a part of this uh, uprising, and his name was on the uh, wanted list. He was wanted for involvement in helping promote the uprising, but it turns out, folks, that Herman Husband was never caught. He escaped on horseback, really, in a sense, in the nick of time where he ultimately returned home to Maryland, but yet he was forced to leave his family in North Carolina behind. I can't imagine you know, having to leave your own family behind, given that you are on the run and that you're wanted by the state's um, most highest official, being that of um, Lord Tryon, uh, North Carolina's royal governor. Interesting about Lord Tryon is that one day... Down the road, he will um, become royal governor to the state of, um, or in the British eyes, the colony of New York, but in the Americans' eyes, um, the state of New York. Uh, there is a place in uh, North Carolina called Tryon, North Carolina. I want to say it is, and a matter of fact, it is in uh, western North Carolina, not too terribly far from uh, Asheville. So, whenever you hear Tryon, North Carolina, uh, think of Governor uh, William Tryon. But nonetheless, I can't imagine um, having to leave my family and not knowing um, whether or not I would uh, see them. You know, we should uh, be reminded that uh, not everyone, you know, <laughs> we don't have access to phones. We don't have access to vehicles that, you know move via internal combustion engines, so it's not like we can call up and say, hey, you know, uh, we've got to evacuate. All of us have to go now. (laughs) Uh, Was Herman Husband a nationalist? Yes, he was. Uh, He favored unity along with a strong national government, but yet he also sought equal access to political power where the power itself was not concentrated... um, in the hands of a few but amongst the masses herman husband envisioned i thought this was very interesting um, in terms of a um, in terms of an idea for how um, a future government could lie could be laid out obviously Herm, herman husband is not a big fan of the articles of confederation but he has a grand envision in his mind of how uh of how a future um, national government should be structured. It was a three-tier level uh, structure. um, All 13 states would be placed at the bottom tier, and they would uh, go about having the authority in overseeing their own counties and townships affairs. The second tier um, level of government would place uh, states into four large regions, so it might be fair to say that one region would get four states, and the other three regions each would have um, three states to themselves. So the states in Herman Husband's eyes would get uh, categorized into four large regions, where each region got overseen by a senate, being the upper body, like what the American govern, like what the United States Congress has today. So they would be overseen by a Senate, whereas the single assembly body, which we would think of in today's time as a House of Representatives, would be based per each member state that would appoint the number of representatives based upon the region's uh, population. So it's a representation by uh, population. Of course, we do have... um, one of our fellow forefathers being uh, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who brokered that Great Compromise, where no matter how big or small your state was, each state would get two senators, and that representation was based upon uh, population. Now, the four uh, senates had the power to veto laws deemed unfair. Now, to me, this almost sounds like a judicial system to an extent. Now, as we get to the third tier, there is the executive body of twenty-four men known as elders, whom would listen in on appeals regarding state law vetoes, to confirming judicial systems per each region. The elders were to make decisions by majority rule. Now, I will say this: this is a true, um, this is a truly um, phenomenal plan that Herman Husband laid out. However. His approach or concept which was um, grand from a biblical perspective given he was a preacher because he took some of these um, ideas into forming um, the government from uh, based upon biblical um, findings or biblical teachings from the Bible however something grander prevailed being that of the United States Constitution, a federal document with a better-defined system of checks and balances, but not in the eyes of Herman Husband. Okay, well, you know, I think it is fair to say that even in 1787 there were going to be those whom were not going to be satisfied with what uh, the delegates in Philadelphia had come up with in terms of a constitution, but, um, but as Benjamin Franklin put it so well, He said, you know, it may not be the most perfect document, or it may not be the best of documents, but it was the best we could come up with. And over time, the document will change, but the bottom line is that it's better than what we had before, being the Articles of Confederation, which, you know, pretty much allowed 13 entities, being 13 states, to dictate the entire show. So... For Herman husband, he truly believed that the United States Constitution benefited only the few and not the masses. Hey, there again, you know you can't um we can't legislate how other people feel, but if this the way if this is the way Herman husband feels, then you know no matter how hard we could try to tell him to to think differently, um there's no guarantee that we might be able to break the mold on that part. Now, the passage of taxing a good like whiskey marked a unique first that given that whiskey had become the first domestic good taxed in America with hopes of generating um, revenue behind financing Revolutionary War debts at home and abroad, but now Herman Husband began drifting away from nonviolence philosophies and instead preached sermons to Frontier's people advocating the necessary means behind using forceful power and overcoming actions by a few whom stood to benefit at the expense of the masses, being the laborers. The sermons, in return, prompted militias into drilling for something big, grand. Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't take much to get riled up, and it doesn't take much to start preaching your frustrations to crowds of people whom already feel somewhat disenchanted or disenfranchised. And once you get all of that fuel and fire together, it does lead to um, even more anger, more resentment, based upon the fact that there are those from high above being an elite few whom are, whom, whom to the uh, oppressed uh, feel as though that they just don't... Um, feel valued. I think it might be fair to say, sadly, that there is a sector in all societies, not just, you know, not only here in America, and I'm not trying to sound political, folks, but I think it is, we should be reminded that even in the early years of America's Republic, that there were people, uh, most notably those along the frontier, whom, while yes, they, you know, it, it would be fair to say that, you know, some people would say, oh, they were just, you know, a bunch of, um, a bunch of uh, hillbillies, but that's not true. There were plenty of people on the frontiers who were educated uh, men, whom had served in the French and Indian War in the American Revolution. They just wanted to make sure that their voices were not forgotten. You know, th- they were the little guys, but they wanted to be able to have uh, fair recognition in the faces of those whom were uh, being the big guys. Could it be fair to say that even Herman Husband wanted the the little guys to be able to benefit from the United States from this new United States Constitution document. Perhaps so. Now, whom was appointed? We're going to now start learning about um, a little bit more about whom is, was appointed to collect the whiskey tax in western Pennsylvania. And we're also now going to f- learn a little bit more about the Neville connection. So, here we go. Uh, whom was appointed to collect the whiskey tax in western Pennsylvania? His name was John Neville, N-E-V-I-L-L-E. He was a well-to-do businessman as well as a commercial farmer. He had an estate called Bower Hill near the Monongahela River above the valley of Chartier's Creek. And there is a place on the outskirts of Pittsburgh known as Chartier's, Pennsylvania. John Neville held the rank of general what does that tell you, right there, folks? He could be up there. Yes, George Washington's president of the United States, but Washington was a general. Hey, John Neville's a general, so those two have something in common. Now, John Neville, folks, um, he—you know—he lives in Western Pennsylvania. Does he have good rapport with people living along the Forks of the Ohio? He does. And he had been living there for close to 10 years. However, by 1791, whatever relationships he had with those uh, other people living along the Forks of the Ohio, things start to uh, change, and they don't change for the better. So, General Neville's popularity from within the community declined in the midst of his receiving the post As Revenue Inspector for the Fourth Survey. I tell you, it's one thing to appoint someone to collect the whiskey tax in Western Pennsylvania, but to appoint someone from within. I know this is going to cause a lot of uproar um, because I can only imagine friendships um, on an individual level could be impacted uh family um family and maybe not so much family but friends you know like say greater um neighbors how about that you know i i could see now where uh, there's going to be great potential for um for some relationships to be uh negatively impacted uh from within knowing that um that general neville has now been appointed to collect the whiskey tax in western pennsylvania now the excise law aka whiskey tax of march 1791 provided the executive branch with the means of dividing the united states into federal districts wouldn't it be fair to say folks that if you're going to appoint someone to collect the the tax the whiskey tax in western Pennsylvania, they shouldn't. that individual shouldn't have to go all the way as far south as, uh, say, um, North and South Carolina. No, that, that's quite a, a long haul, to say the least. So, the excise law, rather the whiskey tax of March 1791, is going to provide the executive branch with the means of dividing the U.S. into federal districts. Each is assigned to a state. Large states like Pennsylvania got divided into surveys. Where inspectors went about hiring deputies, registering stills, monitoring production levels, to reporting violation incidents. This is a lot here, folks. I mean, but you know what? They've got to, they have to be able to assure that uh, people are abiding by the rules, that is the distillers. But in order for a law to be effective there has to be communication not only between the distillers and the inspector but there also has to be communication as far away as philadelphia otherwise if you're not getting if you're not communicating properly and people aren't abiding by the law then how can there be a tax collected so uh, General Neville oversaw the heart of America's distillery. Remember, um, over a fourth of all distilleries in America are at this time, are uh, concentrated along the forks of the Ohio. And given that uh, a large number of them, most notably, were in uh, Washington, Allegheny, Fayette, and Westmoreland counties. Pennsylvania's westernmost counties, where Neville himself is also a distiller. Well, I tell you, it's one thing for him for ne- for uh General Neville to be a distiller, but knowing that he's competing against other distillers could raise another uh flag. If General Neville has a, a fine estate along the Monongahela River, wouldn't it be fair to say that he is a large distiller? In other words, he's gonna be able to produce more gallons of whiskey than say the average um Distiller who is only doing this um, as a side jo- side job, perhaps, maybe. The Neville family, and I'll mention this um, again here momentarily, but it's a an, an army family. His brother-in-law was a major, and um, the Neville family became known uh, basically as the Neville connection. And I'm sure some of you are wondering why the Neville connection, because the Neville uh, family sought sought many of things, industrial, mercantile, anything social revolving around Pittsburgh. Could it be fair to say that maybe the Neville family was like the equivalent of uh, philanthropists, Uh, perhaps? Um, In 1791, we know that Pittsburgh's population was about a thousand people. Other prominent families besides the Neville's were uh, the Bryson's, the Day's, the Ormsby's. They all had stakes at hand in making Pittsburgh, America's westernmost town, a prosperous commercial hub for western growth. Now, Isaac Craig, who was General Neville's son-in-law, became the deputy quartermaster for troops stationed within Pittsburgh Major Abraham Kirkpatrick, who was General Neville's brother-in-law, ran the commissary at Fort Fayette. Whiskey was the most vital product of the Army's supply, and because that was the case, uh, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton viewed consistency and documentation as essential behind good uh, record-keeping practices. If there aren't such things as good record keeping practices, then how can um, then how can we be assured that um, that the government is getting everything that it's supposed to get in terms of uh, collecting the taxes? Now, whom was uh, General John Neville's first choice in uh, locating um, to registering stills for um, Western Pennsylvania? I don't know if we, do we all remember this fellow's name? Uh, he was mentioned briefly, I believe, in uh, the, the introduction. His name was Robert Johnson. Um, Mr. Johnson had tried left and right to reason with Frontier Distillers when he came upon them behind collecting the taxes on the whiskey. But he ended up uh enduring widespread torture and humiliation what was that torture and humiliation folks it wasn't bullying al- although there probably were plenty of threats issued against him in the f- in forms of general bullying but he was tarred and feathered i can't imagine what being tarred and feathered was like but i know that that was um, not a pleasant experience uh, for anybody uh, whatsoever October of 1791 saw Deputy Federal Marshal Joseph Fox enter Allegheny County to serve those suspects whom tarred and feathered Robert Johnson. With arrest warrants on federal charges, Mr. Fox knew the danger's at stake, but decided instead, with General Neville's approval, to send warrants through a proxy. Proxy is where someone else uh, has authority to represent someone has the authority to represent someone else um, through their uh, consent. John Connor was the man who was assigned to issue the the warrants on the behalf of um, on the behalf of uh, federal marshal Joseph Fox, along with uh, the along with approval from General um, Neville. Well, John Connor did not have. Um, much luck at all, Uh, although he did go about assigning uh, the the warrants, uh, most notably for Daniel Hamilton, whom had viciously attacked Robert Johnson, along with others whom had participated. Like Robert Johnson, before, John Connor, too, got tarred and feathered. It seems like nobody's having luck at enforcing this law not just enforcing the law, but collecting the tax. In the aftermath of Joseph Fox's server, John Carter, John Connor, getting tarred and feathered, no arrest warrants were administered throughout the fall of 1791. General Neville compiled a list of incidents and sent them to the Treasury Department. He firmly believed that the presence of armed forces could help oversee federal taxes getting collected along the forks of the Ohio. And I really do have to wonder, and, and I do actually per- perhaps um, agree with um, General Neville here that, hey, you know, we've tried left and right to send people out, and nobody wants to abide by the, the laws. What else can we do differently? Well, let's find out. Uh, did the whiskey tax lead to multiple petitions and complaints? Yes. Uh, many complained about how unjust or unfair the tax itself was, and Congress, most notably Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, bore the brunt of the matter at hand, given that successes from 1791, the year before, were struggling to keep afloat in 1792, uh, as New York's markets, being uh, the many businesses, endured financial hardships. Alexander Hamilton read over the Green Tree petition, which uh, Mr. Brackenridge took to Philadelphia, but he rejects it. Why would you say that he uh, rejected it? He rejected it, um, well, for Hamilton, the whiskey tax centered upon consumption, You know, alcohol is a very popular beverage, you know, I mean, it still is today, but we have to remember that, you know, people didn't drink water. There was no such thing as bottled water. We also have to remember those who had access to a well were well-to-do people. The average person, if they want to get water, it's going to have to be from a river it's going to have to be from maybe from a nearby pond, but they're taking the risk knowing that there that there is a hidden contamination in, in those uh, rivers and ponds. Meaning that, um, not trying to gross you all out, but you know animals <laughs> defecate in bodies of water, so there's no way to um, filtrate out the uh, harmful uh, particles. Whereas well water can filtrate out anything that could be deemed uh, harmful. So. For uh, Alexander Hamilton, he sees um, the whiskey tax is uh, revolving around consumption versus production. Sure, you can produce all the uh, whiskey you want, but what it's going to boil down to is consumption. More people consuming the whiskey, that means more taxes being um, more tax coming in in terms of the revenue. So more consumption alone would mean more demand. Including greater means of collecting revenue. So, if consumption declines, then if consumption declines, then there won't be as great of a demand to produce the uh, commodity. So, this is where ha- Alexander Hamilton is um, re- could be referring very well to what we know as uh, the laws of supply and demand. Alexander Hamilton uh, rejected uh, Mr. Brackenridge's argument on Westerners' unique situation pertaining to grain. The grain grain itself was a non-taxed commodity, but it became a taxable one. Um, being that where it was converted into the the grain itself was used to make uh, whiskey and because it the grain they used grain for making the whiskey it became a taxable one for means of selling Um, hamilton uh, believed that consumers paid the taxes versus the producers now, did anything change uh, law-wise regarding the whiskey tax from 1791 during the year 1792? Yes. There was an updated whiskey tax law of 1792 that removed differences between city and country producers. Distillers can now pay tax per still capacity, meaning how many um, gallons of... Um, of liquor uh, their stills uh, could hold or they also had the option of uh, paying the tax per total gallons produced the big distillers would have been the ones benefiting from the new plan as they favored paying the revised tax per still capacity but small distiller producers lagged behind given their operations were shorter you know this is like you know side job work for them and the capacity rate of whiskey produced was already causing their taxes uh, to remain uh, high. So, the big guys have more uh, inlets, they have, or outlets, I should say. The little guys are lucky if they have one outlet, but it's not going to assure them, um, it's not going to assure them that they will have um, greater success than they had, say, um, a year before. What did uh, Alexander Hamilton want more than anything else from the new whiskey tax law? From the new whiskey tax law. He wanted enforcement. How about law enforcement of it? He advocated a central excise office that would be stationed in each county requiring all distillers to register their stills. And the failure to register them meant giving up a still completely with a fine of $250. It's one thing to pay a fine, but to pay a $250 fine, I mean, for most families, I mean, it would take an eternity probably to come up with $250 if you're in the um, middling family um, status or middling status, given that most middling families are only making about 12 pounds a year. Now, remember uh, William Finley uh, from a previous uh, podcast, folks? Well, what do you know? He's reemerged and he's now serving in Congress. He rose up against the new tax law by persuading there be a one cent reduction, which succeeded per his efforts. Mr. Brackenridge's opposition towards the matter at stake irked Alexander Hamilton so much that he felt there was no other way to resolve the the issue beforehand um, besides using militaristic force. In other words, Alexander Hamilton is very, very determined that he is going to get everything there is um, tax-wise from all the consumers consuming the whiskey, no matter what their status is in society. He is determined that he's going to get every ounce of uh, tax revenues into his um, into the uh, government coffers to where um, revenue is going to be generated it's going to help pay the debts um, from the revolutionary war uh, left and right and while it's a grand envision we must keep in mind that this isn't something that's going to happen overnight well we've covered a lot of ground as always which is definitely a good thing I do know that when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, learn about the Mingo Creek Association, and I also hope to be able to cover some other uh, information as well. Uh, the Mingo Creek Association, um, I could tell you this much, is a um, radical group of leaders whom are... Um, it might be fair to say that they uh, don't like anything that um, the government above uh, enacts that could uh, disrupt their livelihoods, simply in part because they fear that, that their voices are not being um, appreciated, or, or I should say, in a sense, valued. So that's what we will um, talk, um, like I said, we will uh, talk about the Mingo Creek Association in the next podcast, and we will also try to fit in some other information as well. Thank you for your time as always, and uh, I look forward to being back on the air with you guys next time. And once again, thank you all for being such great ardent listeners without you all. I'm not sure where I would be, but uh, thank you again from the bottom of of my heart. Take care for now, and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe.